You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Okay, well, welcome everyone to our final session of your 10 hard questions. And this is what we've been doing for 10 weeks, going through hard questions And uh, we have covered quite a few. We began by looking at how can you say there's only one true faith. We listened to how Christianity does not denigrate women. We talked about how how we can take the Bible, not literally, but literarily. Uh, We explored Christianity and violence. We did one on isn't Christianity anti-LGBTQIA+, which was... Yeah, that's quite quite a quite a week. Um, we did one on racism and slavery. We had David Robinson from Regent College. Does everything really happen for a reason? Where he talks about God's sovereignty and providence. We looked at suffering a couple of weeks ago, and last week we looked at hell. And tonight it's your hardest questions. <laughs> I feel like there should be a music to go. They're your hardest <laughs> questions. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, this is what we're doing uh, tonight. And so just as a reminder, and I hope you've gotten this from this class, it is okay to ask hard questions, right? If all truth is God's truth, we do not need to be afraid. The reality of Jesus does not stand or fall on how well we answer a question. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we need to remember that. And so as you have tough questions, keep keep them coming. Um, the second thing is just a reminder, I may not have the, que- the answer you're looking for, uh, but Mike will. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> And so, and so keep, <laughs> keep your questions coming. Like tonight, what we're going to do tonight is uh, your hardest questions. And so basically what it is, is a compilation of questions that you fired my way uh, over these last few weeks. Um, and so we put them together. And this is the way I think we'll do it tonight. Is uh, we're, we'll go through these questions. We'll give it a shot. When we're done with the questions, and if we still have time, and we'll time it so there's no time. I mean, uh, <laughs> sorry, I said that out loud. Um, no. When we get to the end, if we still have time, then if you have follow-up questions to the questions that we answered, it's like, well, hang on, you said this. So you have to remember the question and and, and um, harken back to it. The other thing is, um, if you don't have any follow-up questions, but you have another question, and if we have time... We'll, we'll take your questions. But just remember, we haven't prepared. And so it might be like, I have no idea. Um, but we'll give it a shot, okay? Uh, what I'm going to do is just going to start. I'm going to read a passage of scripture. And then I'm going to pray. And then we'll dive right in. Now, I should say, I have with me tonight. I'm standing up. You'll seem awfully short. Uh, Mike Clausen. And Mike is, uh, if you've been in in my classes over the years, you know that Mike often will teach uh, classes. Um, I tried to get him this semester, but he has some excuse about having a surgery or something. I don't know. Um, So I did get him for tonight. And uh, Mike, as you know, he's he's often uh, teaching over the years. And he's currently a student at Regent College doing his master's. So uh, I'm so glad Mike is with us tonight. (laughs) 
with me today. Um, the passage I like to read is 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. It says, Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy. And always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Let me repeat that again. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and respect. And often as Christians, we forget that little part. Um, having a good conscience so that when you're slandered, those who revalue uh, your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Okay, let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would guide us as we explore these, uh, these questions tonight. Grant us wisdom and discernment. And may this not just be about answering questions, but may this draw us deeper and deeper into our life in you. That's our desire in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'll remind our cyber friends to uh, maybe mute yourself. Again, sometimes I hear dishwashers and dogs barking and conversations. And you do realize that if you have a conversation and you're not muted, it does get uploaded onto the computer, onto the weekly class for everyone to hear your conversation for years to come. So just, just, just telling you, right? Okay, first question. Um, so I'm going to run run with a few of them from the start, and then I've given Mike some really particularly hard ones, uh, but we'll probably just go back and forth in this. Yeah. First question. Why do so many church leaders, pastors, and parishioners express that someone isn't a Christian when the person is claiming that they are a Christian? Does sinful behavior or certain misunderstandings of the Bible negate you from being a Christian? I've heard so often, oh, they think they're a Christian, but they aren't. And I'm always really confused why leaders and pastors pass judgment. Help me understand, please. Well, okay. That's a great question. Um, and it's it's quite relevant to me this week because I got a phone call from somebody from another province, didn't know who he was, and he really didn't give me much opportunity to say much other than um, he just wanted to communicate that I am a lukewarm Christian pastor and I and the entire church is going to hell because we're clued out about what the true gospel truly is. And I'm like, and he just came at me, came at me, came at me. And it, I couldn't even get a, a word in edgewise. Um, and, and then it, at the end, he says, well, you're not a Christian. And he said something about Christmas Christmas trees or something like that. But, oh, okay. but anyhow, then, so actually, I I politely hung up on it. But, um, <laughs> but, but that was a case this week, you know, so it's, it's a very uh, relevant question. I think we have to be careful in this. And sometimes I do know as Christians, we're very quick to say, well, they believe that they're not Christian, right? Well, we need to listen very carefully to Jesus's teaching, especially in Matthew chapter seven, where Jesus talks about, you know, why are you so concerned about a speck that's in your brother's eye and you don't pay attention to the huge log that's in your own, mm. right? And I think a little bit of self-understanding, a little bit of look at our your own heart 
And you'll realize that our hearts are bent towards ways that are not very good. Mm -hmm. And that every single one of us is in need of grace. Okay. So I get that. And I'm very reticent to say someone is not a Christian if they say they're a Christian. Um, Now, having said that, having said that, we also need to read in Matthew 7, where where Jesus says, not everyone who says, you know, uh, what was that? Lord, not, Lord. Yeah, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will actually get, get a response from you, right? Yeah. Um, and so there are there are some things that I think would disqualify you from being a Christian. For example, if you really do not care about following Jesus, then by definition, you're not a Christian. Because to be a Christian is to be a disciple, and to be a disciple is to follow Jesus, right? And so if you have no interest whatsoever in having anything to do with Jesus or walking in his ways, then I would at least ask the question, are you truly a Christian? And usually what I hear from people is like, well, you need to know I really love Jesus. I'm like, well, that's great. But to love him means to follow him. And the way of the disciple is a way of denying yourself, taking up your cross and following him. And you'll be known by the fruit that you bear. And so simply because you've said a prayer on the back of a tract at one point in your life, you said some sinner's prayer, does not a Christian make. And so I would push back on a person who's who's maybe saying, you know, as a Christian, we can believe this, this and this, which is clearly not a Christian perspective. I could ask that question. And I think it's it's justifiable to do that. But you ask it with what? Gentleness and respect. Mm. And the problem is, is if you don't say with gentleness and respect, I think that's a problem. You got anything to add to that? I mean, the one thing that uh, came to my mind is the um, phrase that Mark Francisco said a number of times, which is that uh, God doesn't have grandchildren, he only has children. Mm-hmm. And so as a response to some people that are like, well, of course I'm a Christian. I grew up in the church. Right, good. I uh, like my parents were pastors or I was confirmed in the Catholic church as a, as a, as a, as a baby, like clearly that makes me a Christian, but the idea is that the faith is belongs to somebody else that they're claiming is their own, as opposed to um, them living it out themselves and, and having a relationship with Jesus. And once again, I think in those cases, asking questions and well, are you actually following Jesus? Yeah. Are you are you, are you understanding what he's saying and, and and putting that into practice in your life? Yeah. Or is it just a box that you check on the census form? That's right. And that's a really good observation. I don't know if it's so much in Canada as much anymore, but there was a time probably 25, 30 years ago. Well, I know like growing up in school, in high school, we had the Lord's prayer every morning. Mm-hmm. And so it was, it was, you're part of like being Canadian meant you were a Christian in, in a way. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, as a response, and, and that house, it used to be, that's how a lot of people would say, yes, I'm a Christian, but by that, they mean I'm Canadian or I'm yeah. a citizen of Canada. Yeah. That's good. Um, okay. Next question. Does it matter whether one person or more people pray for healing? Will more people petitioning God make it more likely to get an answered prayer? What's the point of praying for others if God's ultimate will is what will prevail and his best will will be done? So those are, you snuck in a second question there, which is a a big question. Um, Now, here's the thing. This is how I'd respond is one thing is you need to know 
All prayer is our heart's desire. Right? Your heart's desire, in many ways, is an expression of prayer. And so when, when a person says, does it matter if one person prays or more people to pray for healing? Well, will more people petitioning God make it more likely to get an answered prayer? The reality is, if something's on your heart, to pray is, is always a good thing. It's always a good thing to pray. And as David Robinson pointed out, God in his sovereignty and in his providence may be using your particular prayer in the grand scheme of things to bring about a transformation in the person for whatever you're praying for. So we don't know what God will do, but God may be using your particular prayer because God is an empowering God and he allows us to pray mm. and he allows us to show compassion to others and to pray and to petition and to intercede for others. And God may use that to carry out his purposes. Um, this idea that the more people that pray, the better. We have to be careful with. No, people don't say this, but sometimes this idea that, you know what, this is so important. Not only am I going to pray, I can get the whole church. I can get my small group to pray. I can get the whole church to pray. I'm going to get us to fast and pray. Now, sometimes behind this is the idea that if God just hears my voice, he's probably not going to pay attention. If you get a lot of voices, then finally God's going to go... Fine, I can hear you now. What what is it that you want? Okay, you're all fine. Okay, I guess I better listen. As if God, in, who, who is love, will not hear our cry. So we have to be careful. There is sometimes that thinking behind, let's get more people to pray, as if we have to get God's attention. But the assumption is that God will not pay attention unless a lot of noise is coming his way. We have to be careful with that. It's not a good, it's not a true depiction of God. I think it is important to get your small group to pray and even the church to pray as an act of love and care for one another, because this is what the church is. We care for one another. We care for our brother or our sister who's hurting, and we will stand with her and with her express our concern and our passion about this particular subject. That I think is a good thing, mm -hmm. but we need to keep those things clear. Take, anything you want to add to that? The only thing I was going to say was along the lines of um, uh, what you're saying about God. The I, thinking that God would hear if more people uh, prayed. There's also a, a kind of a parallel idea that if we do uh, the right formula, that mm -hmm. God will be uh, forced to Good. act. Yeah. So you know. It's it's not a very important thing. So if I pray, that's probably sufficient. But if it's super important, if somebody's really sick, then not only do I need to get a bunch of people to pray, but I also need to fast. And then that's the magical formula that'll get God to act. Yeah. And we'll get the good prayers. Yeah. The people the, the good the, prayers. Yeah, yeah. The people really know how to pray. <laughs> well, and there is like I chuckle, but it's uh, I've seen this. Um, the other thing is you have to realize, and this is really important. Um that in the Bible, the Bible talks about mysteries, okay? Now, when the Bible talks about mystery, it is never understood in the sense that, huh, who, who knows, it's just a mystery. It's not a throw up your hands, we have no idea. That's not what the Bible means by mystery. Mystery is actually a positive 
doctrine or positive um, understanding within the Bible. And what the Bible clearly teaches is that God is sovereign, that he has providence over all of history. He stands over all of history. And our prayers make a difference. Hmm. Now, you can stand by, well, if God knows everything, then how am I? Okay. You can do that and see how, how that's going to work out. You're not going to figure that out. But the Bible does teach and it's in, and it's taught as a positive thing. It's not a, we don't know. It's, it's God is sovereign. He stands over all of history and our prayer. And we're called to pray and to pray for one another. And our prayers make a difference. And we hold those two things as true. Now I get it. You know, the question is, well, how could that be? Well, that's fine. But the reality is, is, we, we should expect, if we're dealing with God, that we're dealing with something that's beyond our capacity to truly understand. Yeah. I think that's part of it. We can add that to that. Just that if God has, um, I don't know if I'd use devolved, but but given empowered us, that's a much better word. Mm-hmm. If God has empowered us um, to affect change by our prayers, then the, the flip side is that uh, he's also in his sovereignty. He can allow things not to happen that might otherwise have happened if we don't pray. And so if we pray, he can empower things to happen and he might let things not happen if we don't pray. So we are called as, as Christians to pray. Yeah. And that's what we're taught. And part of being a faithful follower of Jesus Christ is to pray and to pray, um, to grow in our relationship with God, but also to intercede for one another. The other question, the next question is, what are your thoughts on Christian dating, Christians dating non-Christians? Well, <laughs> everybody's leaning in now, yeah. <laughs> well, first off, I completely understand why a person would want to just get married and, and kind of bypass them being a Christian or not. I get that. I totally do. Because statistically speaking, In evangelical churches in North America, the percentage of women to men stands at 65, 35, 65% women, 35% men. So right from the get-go, the odds are tough. Mm. They're really tough. And so I understand, you need to know, I totally understand. Um, And yet in the same time, I would just say, I would say be very careful on this one. Be very careful in this one. Uh, scripture uh, warns against being unequally yoked, and there's and and it's not just some hard fast rule. No, Christians should not date non-Christians, and that's it. There's there's more going on. Um, there's so much. Like to be a Christian is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It is a completely distinct way of understanding reality and how we are to live in this reality. And this distinctive way of living stands in distinct contrast to someone who's not a Christian. So let me give you an example. I won't use names. But one time I knew this young woman who was dating a non-Christian. And uh, she was really struggling with this because she's like, I just don't think I should keep dating him. And he got all mad. He's like, why? He goes, I respect that you're a Christian. I respect you going to church. 
I'm a good guy. What's the big deal? And so I went out for coffee with this man, young man. And I sat down with him and I said, you probably think this is really stupid, don't you? He goes, well, it's, it's, I said, I get that. Because I remember when I was not a Christian, I was in a group and there's these young girls and one girl was quite cute and I was interested in her. And she just said, yeah, there's no way I would ever date a non-Christian. I'm like, <laughs> and I said, well, that's kind of narrow-minded, bigoted thinking. What's wrong with us non-Christians? We're totally, I kind of went on and on. Anyway, I was talking to this young guy and I said, you probably think this is really strange. I said, I, I, I totally get that. I said, but here's the thing. As a Christian, we believe that everything we own belongs to God, which includes our money and everything. Everything belongs to God. We also believe as Christians that part of the way of Jesus is to be willingly giving away our money. I said, are you okay with that? He's, he was a business guy. I said, are you okay? To, I said, you're okay with, with, with your future wife just giving, I don't know, 10, 15, 20% of your income away? So what I said, it's a different way of thinking. It's a different way of thinking. I said, you know, as, 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 as Christians, we believe that we're called to worship together in community. I said, so imagine on a sunny day, it's the weekend. You've worked all week. You're tired. Sunday morning, your wife gets up, all your kids, and they leave. And you're stuck at home all day long. Well, they're off at church and they're doing different things. I said, you're telling me that's not going to bug you over time? Oh, well, does she have to go? Well, I said, this is a different way. Of, I said, it's not just your Christian, not Christian, it's some simple beliefs. I said, it's, it's about your whole life, how you see reality. I said, what if your wife says to you, I, I have discerned that God has called us to do this or that God is calling me to do this. And you disagree. How are you going to handle that? God's calling her to this. You don't believe in God. So you don't think that'll be a problem? And he's like, okay. Now, and I'll just add one more thing. I've been pastoring for a long time. And I've met many couples that are unequally yoked. And, and, and I know many of them that the marriage has worked because they just, they really love one another. But in every case, there's always a challenge. And I also know many, many, many marriages that fell apart because of some of the things that I just said. And so I just lay that out. I totally understand why the reasoning behind the question and the odds are not good. So what it means is as men, we need to step up our game, come to the mental with this Saturday. Um, um, and we do, we do need to get men, men to, to come, come back to church or not ever to come back. It's not like they ever were there. I mean, it's always been more women than men. So we need to uh, we need to proclaim the gospel to men. I think that's really important. Does that help? Um, what's that? <laughs> what are your thoughts about Christians watching horror movies? Well, it depends on the movie. No. Uh, <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> Stranger Things is pretty good. <laughs> Well, now that is interesting. Let's <laughs> let's linger there for a second. I watched Stranger Things, which is a show on Netflix for, for those of you who are living under a rock. Uh, <laughs> no, 
It's a show that's been on uh, Netflix for a few years, and it's it's quite an exciting show. It's, it's mm. very well done. This season came out. I stopped watching it after episode one. And the reason why I stopped watching it is that there were some images and there's some um, themes in the story that I felt were quite demonic. Okay. And so I thought, I, I can't keep watching it. It was, it was, it was affecting me. Mm-hmm. It got into my head. And so that's why I typically don't watch horror movies. I watch it once and that was crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, they get into me, they get, and they affect me. And so I think that's a good example because mm-hmm. it really is not a question of legalism. Can you watch this or can you not watch this? It's knowing your heart and yeah. knowing how you're made. And I know that there's certain movies I cannot watch. I cannot watch typically a horror movie with with uh, with the demonic or if that's part of the the, the storyline. And I can't watch any movie there where there's violence against women or children. I can't it just mm. even if it's an Academy Award winning film, I can't watch it because it just it really affects me. So you need, but I know other people who are very good film critics and they can watch these movies and it doesn't affect them in the same way. Yeah. So part of it is understanding your heart. Would yeah. You, would you agree? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Anything you want to add to that? No, that, that, that you covered that pretty well. Um, yeah. So you think about that. Yeah. Now, one of the big topics is, uh, and it's very, very complicated and it's a topic of purgatory. <laughs> And so I'm going to grab a seat and uh, <laughs> turn this over to Mike. Okay, so the question is, does the Bible talk about purgatory or is it only the Roman Catholic books? Which is it, Mike? Come on. <laughs> so, so to clarify, um, I'm, I'm like, I've read Roman Catholic theology, but I'm not in any stretch of the imagination an expert in this. Um, but that having been said, I mean, we did do that class on, on purgatory and, and uh, I, I have read uh, quite a bit in the last week uh, about it and, and, and looking at it and looking at kind of the history of it. Uh, first of all, I would say that um, when we look at something like purgatory for, from a, a scriptural perspective, there isn't anything that I could really find within the context of what we would say would be the Protestant Bible that uh, that that would lead down this particular theological path. Um, when we look at the parts of the Catholic scriptures that would, it would be the areas that we as Protestants Protestants call the um, apocrypha. So uh, apocryphal writings are are generally writings that are the four hundred years between Malachi and Matthew, and even in the Protestant church, we, we Protestant churches, we would agree that they're they're good to read. They have a lot of positive things in there, but they're not scripture. And so any kind of theological views that you take out of that, we would argue have to be taken with with a grain of salt and and compared to uh, what's actually in the Bible. That having been said, there is a passage in the book Second Maccabees that when you read it, it does seem to point to a general uh, view of purgatory. I could see how you could come to that conclusion. So that that would be the theological perspective of it. There's also uh, a philosophical uh, view of of purgatory. And that, 
I can actually understand a lot easier. And that that comes um, from our understanding, and we would even agree with this, of, of sanctification and purification. So the idea being is that as we live out our Christian lives, we're becoming more and more like Christ. And so I am more like Christ now. Hopefully I'm more like Christ now than I was when I became a Christian 40 years ago. If not, I'm seriously doing something wrong. But there's this idea of becoming more and more Christ-like. So then the question is, is like I I had surgery. I had my kidney removed uh, a month, two months ago. So what happens uh, if, for instance, in that scenario, I had died on, on the operating table? Um, am I am I prepared uh, for life with Christ? Am I sufficiently sanctified? Am I sufficiently Christ-like? And not meaning that if I die, am I going to hell? But am I sufficiently prepared for heaven? And the the view, especially in the Middle Ages, that came out was for most people, the answer is no. And so if the answer is no, when they die, they are not sufficiently prepared for heaven, then what is the answer? And the answer is, well, clearly there's a place that you go to to become prepared for life with Christ, where you um, basically the remaining sin, whatever whatever um, facets of your personality are not sufficiently Christ-like, are, are burnt away. And by the time you leave purgatory, you are therefore uh, sufficiently Christ-like to live in his presence for all eternity. So that's that's a short answer. Now, I could start going into <laughs> Martin Luther, but I don't think I will. That, that that's kind of a that's a rabbit trail we don't need to go down. But that's basically my my understanding of purgatory, um, and why one could come to the conclusion that it becomes a philosophical necessity um, within a, a Christian mindset. Yeah. Non Christians would never go to purgatory. That's not some some place they would go to in, in Catholic theology. They would go to hell. Purgatory is where Christians who are not yet prepared for life with Christ go to to become prepared. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, you probably um, there's a slight difference in the Middle Ages for their understanding of purgatory than kind of like, you know, even some more modern um, reflections on purgatory. In the Middle Ages, there's this idea that you still had sins that you had to um do penance for. yeah so so uh, it's not just that you're not ready for heaven but you still had to deal with your your sins yeah and that would you know it only take it would only take i think three million years to deal with apparently i'm not kidding um in fact and in the wittenberg church where martin luther um served uh, on All Saints Day, on November 1st, they brought out all their holy items. And if you went to the church on All Saints Day and you visited all the holy items out on all the tables, if you did that, that would reduce your time in purgatory by 1,376,243 days. So that's a good good day to go there, right? Yeah, that's a good investment. That's a good day to go there. Um, and so purgatory in many ways... It's a product of the Middle Ages, but that is the height. So this is on my brain right now. I'm teaching church <laughs> history at uh, Trinity Western right now. So um, it's in the Middle Ages, uh, it was the height of scholasticism. And scholasticism is using reason to come to different doctrinal mm-hmm. uh, positions. And so purgatory is reasonable, as you just said. You know, yeah. What do you do if you're not ready to be in heaven, but, you know, you're part of Christendom. You can't go to hell. So, 
a place to purge your sins kind of makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, so Mike, um, I've often been confused about something in Genesis. <laughs> it, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Okay. What was really what really drove it home for me was the thief on the cross. You know, Christ. Yeah, so Rick was saying about the thief on the cross. Yeah. 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 Today you'll be with me in paradise. Oh, that's good. That's good. Yeah, well, yeah, it is. It, it, yeah, there's a whole system of um, paying, paying for praying. Um, that that's part of the medieval understanding of the afterlife and prayer and the efficacy of prayer and who does the praying and what sins need to be remitted. So it's it's it becomes a whole system. Um, so I mean, I can talk to you afterwards a little bit, but there's there's a lot lot to be said about that. And the passage in Maccabees talks about praying for the souls of the dead for their um saints it's not sanctification i can't remember the specific word but anyway praying for the souls of the dead and so that idea is definitely taken from the book of maccabees second maccabees yeah so where did cain's wife come from <laughs> so i think yeah if adam and eve were the first humans and they had two sons cain and abel and then in chapter 4 verse 17 where did cain's wife come from Thank you, Mike. Uh, <laughs> I added the Mike part. Yeah, that was easy. <laughs> oh, here we go. So, looking at this, and I, I just I want to be very, very careful about about how I uh, how I approach this. But I would say that there's uh, two primary uh, theological streams uh, of looking at the first seven to 10 chapters uh, of Genesis. Um, and I think both of them have merit to them. Um, and both of them create certain problems um, in, in other areas of, of theology. So the first one would be um, a, a literalist interpretation, which would be to look at uh, Genesis as history, that God God literally uh, created the earth in six days and then rested on the seventh. And each of these six days were 24 hours um, in, in length. And when he created Adam and Eve, literally there was two people and that was it. There was no other humans. And so from that perspective, where uh, did Cain and I would say Seth's uh, wife, where did their wives uh, come from? Well, in that case, it would be their sisters. Um, because if everybody uh, came from Adam and Eve, then clearly the only women that would be available would be um, their sisters. And the, the I've heard it explained that this was not a problem at the time. Incest is in part an issue. I mean, not even looking at the whole problems of of, of abuse and, and and how that all works works these days. Why was it not a biological problem at the time? Well. Um, because Adam and Eve were the first people, all this pro all these problems with uh, genetic 
issues. And the, one of the reasons biologically why incest is a bad idea is because these genetic issues start to pop up more and more and more. Um, you can just look at the Habsburgs uh, as an example. Uh, they're a monarchy uh, in, in the Middle Ages. Um, why this wasn't a problem in the beginning is because sin hadn't had uh, the opportunity to uh, affect the genetics of Adam and Eve and their descendants. So you wouldn't have had those same problems. That would be the the, the short answer for uh, the, the literalist perspective of who um, Cain and Seth would have married. From a more symbolic perspective, uh, if the first seven to ten chapters or so are, are more symbolic, um, we see a lot of imagery in how the Garden of Eden is described. Uh, and we see a lot of that uh, symbology reflected in how the temple later on in, uh, um, in the Old Testament is described. And so the idea being that the Garden of Eden was actually uh, God's first temple. And Adam and Eve were the first priests that ministered uh, before God in that temple. And in this scenario, well, who are they ministering for then? Well, clearly it would be then the rest of humanity, that Adam and Eve were representative of the rest of humanity, and they were uh, ministering before God, and then they sinned, and they broke their relationship with God, and God expelled them. Well, then who did Cain and Seth marry? Well, there were other people in, uh, around, so that's who they would have married. And there's some other textural, textural, yeah, textual, ugh, um, uh, comments in Genesis that 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 seem to uh, support that. Uh, one being when Cain is talking um, to God about his curse that he's uh, the ground will no longer um, bear fruit for him and that he'll be forced to wander. He says, "Anybody that encounters me will kill me." Well, where would those people have come from? The implication is that the people were already there, um, and it seems like they wouldn't have been his brothers and sisters. So, anyway. Those would kind of be the two streams of thought of where did Cain and Seth's wives come from? That's good. Anything to add? Sorry, what? <laughs> yeah, Mike, what do you believe? <laughs> uh, I was hoping no one could ask. I, I would say I, I hold my position quite loosely, but I would probably lean more towards the second. But if it turns out that I'm wrong in the end, I... That also would not surprise me if, if there was a literalist uh, um, understanding of that. And I don't think that would be what I would call first order importance. It's not the things that are going to make or break our faith. Yeah, a lot of it has to do with how you understand the book of Genesis in the first 11 chapters. Like, is this is this a scientific textbook telling us how things played out? Um, is it is it an account of how things got started, like how things work, or is it uh, primarily theological? Um, I think that's a very important question. I probably lean, yeah, with you towards the second um, on that one for sure. Great. So, hey, I mean, it's no fair that you get all the easy ones, um, because here's another easy one. In Job 1.6, who are the sons of God? In John 21.11, why did they have to count the fish, 153? Why was that important? Thank you, Mike. 
Well, that's actually two questions, two it for is. the price of one. Um, so the first one, the the phrase sons of God, um, some translations say sons of Elohim. And that's used a few times in the Old Testament. And the vast majority of them, it's referring to angelic beings. So, uh, yeah. So when uh, Satan is before God uh, with the other sons of God, he is he is with the angelic hosts uh, before God. Um, that would be about all I have to say about that. Uh, and then why did they give a specific uh, number of fish? The the best um, commentary uh, answer that I read, and a number of them had this answer, was that uh, John was from the area. Um, and whether he was a fisherman or, or not, um, he clearly knew enough about fishing to know that 153 fish in one in one particular catch is is an incredibly high amount and he specified that to emphasize the miraculous nature of the catch and that it added on to the authenticity of his authorship because clearly somebody who uh, somebody who had an eyewitness uh to this event would know the number mm -hmm. yeah. i remember one time i was i was preaching on that passage and so i i, I laid out the fact that there's 153 fish and I paused my message and I said, and do you know the significance of 153? <laughs> and everybody, I could see them just leaning. I said, I said, because if you do, could you tell me? Because <laughs> I have no idea. Because, <laughs> yeah, no commentator says, like, yeah, there's all sorts of speculations, but there's there's really no, nobody knows. I think it's that picture that, and you see this in, in scripture, all throughout scripture. And I love these, these little moments of detail that give it a ring of authenticity mm -hmm. you know you know with uh you know i was preaching on acts three where you have the uh, the lame man and then peter speaking to him and it says peter reached out with his right hand mm -hmm. he just said like why why did you why the right hand you know just those little details i like that. you can't deal with the left hand i guess clearly yeah. us left-handers are yeah we're in <laughs> trouble okay so uh we're moving along um is there a biblical framework that can help us discuss LGBTQ issues with our children in a way that does not cast judgment or shame? Wow. Now, that is a very, very good question. It's a very important question. Um, I think this is overall the challenge that we have as parents to teach our children well, because we not only need to teach them truths, but we also need to teach them grace. And the vision of the Bible is grace and truth. And the two need to go together. And the problem is, is that we often err on one side or the other. And we need to hold these two things together. I would say one of the biggest challenges we have in raising our children is for us as, as parents to have thought through this issue well. And unfortunately, we have not. Not uh, when I say we, I'm not including you because you've all come to my class and we've talked about these things. So I'm talking about other people. Um, <laughs> but but this is no, this is absolutely important. You and I need to think about anthropology very very carefully. What is a biblical view of anthropology? What does it mean to be male and female? What does it mean to be human? We need to have that clear in our mind, and we need to be able to teach our kids this, and we need to be able to teach them what a beautiful story this is. 
So in our teaching, we're not teaching against, we're teaching for. This is this is the biblical view of what it means mm-hmm. to be human. So then how, how do you do this in a, in, in a way that does not cast judgment or shame? Well, that's going to be the challenge. Um, because part of the thing is you cannot control how a person's going to respond. So you can say with all the gentleness, all the kindness, all the respect, with grace and truth, and it can still be seen and misunderstood, and people could experience shame and feel judged. And that's out of your hands. So the only thing you can do is do the best, was Paul say, and as, as much as it depends upon us, live at peace with one another. And so you do whatever you can to be able to teach it in the right way. So I think, you know, one of the things, or a couple of things that come to mind is, first off, we teach the inherent value of every human being. We teach that to our kids, that every human being is made in the in the image of God, has dignity and value, and so needs to be treated with dignity. That's our starter. That's part of being human. And then we focus on God's good intentions for his creation, how he has created uh, this world, how he's created us, and the, and the goodness of it. And then I think we teach our children to walk in truth and grace. And one of the things is, and it's not going to be easy. I'm not saying this is easy. <laughs> in fact, I would say, and I've said this to younger generations, um, it's going to be so difficult to be an authentic follower of Jesus Christ in this generation to come in Canada. It's, it's just going to be hard. Hmm. But we need to distinguish. And this, I get this from Marty. Marty made this point the other day. We we're speaking to... Um, we're speaking to youth on this whole evening on talking about sexuality. So Marty and I were on a panel a couple of weeks ago um, and Marty made the important distinction uh, between accepting and affirming. And as Christians, we accept everyone. And I tell people, if people want to come to the church, regardless of uh, what their background, regardless of what they're facing in life, what it, that everyone who comes here will be accepted and, and will be treated well and will be treated with dignity. But to accept someone does not mean you have to affirm as good something that is contrary to God's word. And so we need to hold those things together. Now, again, it's not easy, but that's okay. uh, Because at every stage throughout church history, there's been a challenge for Christians to live authentic Christian lives. Mm. The big challenge for our particular time is how to walk with grace and truth. Um, and so we need to teach our kids a biblical vision for our humanity and how God has created us and, and for human flourishing. And they need to know that very, very well. And we also need to teach them how to talk to their classmates. We had to do that. We had to do that on a whole bunch of things when our kids were little. Um, yeah, because sometimes we get teachers who, well, one of the issues, I mean, this is a smaller issue, but our kids were very clear that. Christmas is all about the birth of Jesus. And so if they had any classmates saying, Santa Claus is coming, all my kids would be like, Santa Claus isn't real. And the kids would be crying. They go up there, my kids would have to go to the principal's office. And they're, and they're, and they'd be saying to the principal, but he's not real. And so the teachers told us, you know, stop telling your kids to say. And so we'd have to teach them that. So you have to be kind because people may believe different things. We know that Santa Claus isn't real. Um, but you need to be kind to your neighbor because they may believe something different. They're not right, but you still need to accept that this is what they believe. So I think the, the analogy works. It's just a different topic, right? Anything you want to add to that? 
I got in trouble for telling kids there was no Santa Claus. Oh, you got in trouble. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I liked getting the kids to cry, though. I was kind of mean when I was in grade three. <laughs> yeah. Why am I not surprised? Yeah. 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 As an adult, he goes, yeah, as an adult, he goes around <laughs> schoolyards. Yeah. And we can come back to this question if you have some follow up on this one. But I, I, I do think that this question, um, in terms of discipleship and discipling your family, is going to be the biggest challenge for families in in for this next generation to come. And so we do need to be trained on this. And that's one of the reasons why, as much as I'd rather talk about other things, I do end up talking on the subject, because I think we need to think clearly mm. about it. And their first principle issues, it's about anthropology. What does it mean to be human? Yeah. Um, question, do you think, oh, I like this one. This is kind of shifts gears a lot. Do you think Christmas and Easter is celebrated more intensively in heaven? Can a day in heaven be more glorious than another day? Or is it uh, magnificent all the time? So I put a little note here. Are there rainy November days in heaven? Um, <laughs> my answer is I have no idea. But I, but I think that would be cool. Do you have any thoughts on that? <laughs> I got nothing. <laughs> uh, this next question, I think, is a really important question we need to, to lean into. Um, <laughs> somebody wrote, what? Santa isn't real? Oh, yeah. <laughs> what about when God is silent in our personal relationship with him? Hmm. Now, this is a topic that I've spoken with people just recently about. You have to realize that a significant part of the Christian life is the desert. And if you are not acquainted with church history, you won't know this. But the desert is a common experience in the Christian life. Every one of us will walk through the desert. And when I say the desert, where spiritually you feel dry as a bone. And you feel God, you feel like when you're praying, it's ricocheting off the ceiling. And you feel that God is far away. But the reality is, is that we're in good company. There's many people who have had this experience over time. And, and I don't know why always that we're in the desert, but I know that it happens. There's, there is a song by a guy named Michael Card who I really like, and it's called In the Wilderness. And he has this great line. He says, the dusty, something along these lines, the dusty winds of the wilderness will blow the self away. And what happens in, in the desert is we come to realize we have nothing. We have nothing but God. And God needs to be that, that, that our hearts are, are, are thirsting for God in a dry and weary land. And I think God brings us into this place. And, and this is what I'll always say when somebody says, you know, God just seems so far away from me. I pray he's not answering. I don't feel him. I used to feel him, but I don't feel him anymore. And they get angry. And I say, why not? I said, where do you think that frustration of being in the desert comes from? 
Where do you think that discontent that you're feeling about being in the desert, who do you think gives that to you? It's the Holy Spirit. It is, it is God giving us a desire saying, I don't like this. I long to be closer to you, God. That is the work of the Spirit in our lives. And it's often a, a, a place where he is about to do something new. And so whenever, if, if you're in the desert, and I guarantee you that there's some here online and, and here tonight that you're in the desert, you need to know you're in good company. Um, full disclosure, um, I've probably been living in the desert for about nine or 10 years. Um, there's been times of refreshing, but it's been mostly like a soyuz. It's been pretty dry. But I'll tell you, this perspective helps me because I know, okay, I'm in the desert. And so one of the things that happens in the desert is that I continue to trust in God and his goodness and who he is, even though I don't feel him. And I think that that's, that's, that's part of deepening our walk with him. And I think that the, um, there's a fellow who I'm often quoting is John Newton. Uh, who wrote Amazing Grace, but Newton wrote this really interesting letter and he talked about the, the different stages of Christian growth. And he describes the first stage. He says, stage A. He says, that's a stage where when you're a brand new Christian, you're like, this is easy. I pray, God answers. I pray, I feel his presence. I love the Christian life. It's, it's awesome. I worship, my heart is lifted. I got friends, I got fellowship. This is, this is so easy. And then you hit this, the next level or the next section of life. And that's the desert. And it's described as conflict. And it's, it's difficult. And it's hard slogging. And then it leads finally to a place of um, uh, consolation or contentment. But Newton himself, who's an older man, he says, I'm still in the second section. I, I still haven't reached there. Um, but if you know that it is part of the Christian life, and it is a normal part of the Christian life. You're not going to panic and you're not going to say, well, this whole Jesus thing must have been a joke. I, I don't believe it anymore because I, I pray and I just don't feel him. Well, join the rest of church history. <laughs> Read Teresa of Avila. She felt alone for years upon years, dry. And her student was St. John of the Cross, who wrote which book? Does anybody know? The Dark Night of the Soul. And John of the Cross talked about this dark night of the soul where you pray and it's just nighttime and you cannot see God. And I think this is just part of the rhythms of the Christian life. And so we don't need to panic. And we need, and this is where things like journaling is so important because you look back in your journal and you remember in the darkness what you learned in the light. Hmm. It's like, okay, it hasn't always been this way. So if you're in the dark night of the soul or in the desert right now, don't be in a rush. Don't make any rash decisions either, which is an important one. But recognize this is a normal part of the Christian life. Yeah? Yeah. Okay, so this next question is a long question, and it's a very important question. How can the modern-day church adapt its current format and programming to include those with disabilities? Mm. One in five Canadians now have some form of disability that impacts their participation in society. 
including their participation in church. The current church format assumes that congregation is physically able to attend a morning service, can read the Bible, sit still, and listen to a mainly audio sermon that lasts at least 30 minutes, and can engage with others. So how does a dyslexic person read the Bible effectively? How does a chronically ill person attend a morning service in person? How does a person with ADHD sit still and pay attention to a long sermon? How does someone with an auditory processing disorder listen to an in-person audio sermon? The list can go on and on. Is the current church format an exclusive environment that only those without disabilities can fully experience church? Well, that is a very, very good question. Uh, and it's an important question. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, an, uh, again, it's uh, it's an important question, not just for the church today, but I think it's been, a, it's it's expressed itself in different ways throughout history, in fact. Um, the question would be, how do you, how do you preach the gospel to people who are illiterate, or much of the Middle Ages where people could not read or did not know Latin. Um, the, the thing is, there's always going to be limitations on people who, who struggle with reading and listening. And so what I would say in response is that, and and I mean this literally, we need to make the best of situations. We need to make the best of whatever situation we find ourselves in. The answer is not to jettison the Bible um, because we are people of the book. And nor, I think, can we jettison the preached and proclaimed word because I think that is fundamental to the Christian life. Um, I know personally people um, who have dyslexia but are pastors. And to become students of the word, it hasn't been easy, but they've been able to do it. Um, I think the importance of the visual comes into play. We live, there's, um, and I talked to this one guy who was an artist, and he talks about the importance of using visual images to convey the truths of scripture. And I think that's that's helpful Though I would still come back to the fact that a word is worth a thousand pictures. I think a word, the word is still powerful. Um, I think the timing of the service um, and the nature of the services, we may need to rethink. Like, for example, there's a number of people who um, who are deaf. And I've talked to a number of people in the deaf community in Coquitlam who are saying, look, there's just no churches for us. We need, how can we hear the hear, hear the preached word? Uh, there are no churches where, where there's sign language. So that's something we can look into. Um, I think that if a person can't make it up in the morning, um, I think that's why we try to record our services and make them available, even though that's not the same. I do think that maybe to change the timing of the services away from morning. We used to have Saturday night services, um, but maybe to go and offer an evening opportunity uh, for our services. That may be the way forward. I think community is, is really important in this. And people who are in our midst who are able to work with people with special needs. And I think we need to be able to identify people with those gifts and be able to use them to to help people who maybe listening and reading and that is is, is difficult 
Those are some of my thoughts on it. You got any thoughts on it? Yes. Um, <laughs> it just came. I, I think it's easy. Um, it's easy to look at the 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 pastors and the staff and say there's a problem. Um, you need to fix it. But I think there's a lot of times when there are are problems in the church, and when we see the problems, it is, I think, in part on us to be a part of that solution. And so I think, I mean, using the the deaf uh, problem as an example, I mean, if there is somebody uh, in the church who knows sign language, that might be an opportunity to to serve, to to translate the, uh, the, the message that's being preached. In, into sign language, that that would be an example, um, and I would say that for a lot of the other ones that have been given, there might be people who are uniquely gifted to be able to serve in that area to help the uh, the pastors and the staff to be able to um, help those people and and reach them and and give them an opportunity to more fully experience um, um, Christian life. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah, it's a very good question. It's not an easy answer no. either. Yeah. Um, next question: What do we? Um, what do some Christians? Why do some Christians not believe in cremation after death? Such as Catholics don't think it's right, but rather one should be buried instead. As Christians, does it matter either way, or with regard to resurrection of the body? Should we cremate or should we bury the body? So, uh, what do you think? Um, I, I like your answer here. That <laughs> I think when when you look, especially at at Christian history, and you look at the uh, prevalence that uh, of pagans burning their bodies, I think there was an element to which it differentiated Christians from from their neighbors about how they dealt with their dead. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, there's a historical element to it. Um, I would say, from a theological perspective, I mean, somebody who was buried uh, in like the year 50, like there is no difference between the state of their body now than if they'd been, than if they'd been burnt. I mean, it's, it's all atoms at this point. So I don't think you could necessarily say there's a, a theological element to um, how the body was disposed of. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a question that God can't, you know, put together a cremated body into yeah. a resurrected body. I think part of it was, um, historically, you cre- p- pagans would cremate, and uh, Christians buried the bodies. Uh, because, and behind that though is, and this is where I would have just a small pushback, though I'll probably be cremated. Uh, is um, there's this respect for the body mm. that is inherent within Christianity? Our bodies matter. Bodies are not secondary. Bodies are not things that we can make conform into what we want them to look like. We are our bodies. The future Christian hope is not we fly away as a spirit and sit on some cloud. The future, the Christian future hope is physical. It's resurrection. It is the new heavens, new earth, new body. So bodies matter. And so I wonder, I wonder if, if burying the body is a small act of defiance against a culture that looks down upon the body. And I'll just leave. It's very expensive. Mm. But yeah. Um, Okay. Shifting gears. (laughs) (laughs) 
How's that for a segue? Uh, what does the Bible say about masturbation? Now, we may chuckle when we read it, okay, because it's, it's a different kind of question compared to it. But here's the thing. Anytime there's an ask anything, this question comes yeah. up. So it's a very common question. What does the Bible say? Well, nothing, actually. Um, there's this oblique passage in Genesis 38 that's often referred to, but it really has nothing to do with masturbation. Um, like everything else, is the issues of heart. And I know that there's real challenges to living a celibate life if you're single. We are sexual beings. God created us as sexual beings. And there are going to be times in our lives where our bodies feel like they need relief. And so first off, I just want to say it's understandable. Um, the problem, the problem, if there's a problem, the problem lies with where your mind goes when you masturbate. Hmm. Um, it often, usually, probably always <laughs> goes to lustful scenarios. And when you're contemplating lustful scenarios, if you're allowing that to go through your mind, that will affect discipleship. Because to have a lustful scenario means you are taking someone who's made in the image of God and making them an object for your pleasure, hmm. even if it's just in your mind. Um, if it's pornography, then that's even more problematic because now you're you're supporting an industry that's very abusive towards women. The other thing is that uh, masturbation can be addictive. Um, it won't be long um, where you might need this kind of relief simply to fall asleep or to relax. And all addictions are connected to idolatry, where someone supplants the role of God in our life. So you need to be very careful about this. Uh, you need to ask yourselves this question. If I keep doing this, if, if I'm doing this, what is the trajectory of my thought life? What patterns are being formed? And is this moving me closer to Jesus or further away? So it's really a matter of the heart. Does that help? Would you attend a gay wedding? especially if it's your child or relative. How do you explain to the person if you don't want to attend the wedding and not hurt their feelings? Wow, that's, <laughs> I mean, this is a very tough question and it's a question that I actually hear quite often. Um, it's a very important question. Um, and, and, and the challenge is, is that we're, we're, we're caught in the midst of loving Jesus and loving our neighbor. Following Jesus and loving your neighbor. Uh, and it's a tough one. And there's different Christians I know who have different perspectives on this. Some would say, oh, just go to the wedding because the relationship really matters. And to maintain the relationship, you should go to the wedding. As a pastor, I can't participate in any same-sex wedding. Um, I'm just not allowed to. Um, so I couldn't read scripture. I couldn't participate in anything. Mm. Um, here's how I've thought it through. Now, you may disagree with me on this. Chances are many of you will disagree. But this is this is how I, I've thought it through. If I have, a, and I do have a very good friend. If my friend asks me, says, you know, David, I'm getting married to my partner. Would you come to my wedding? If he was getting married, 
at Queen Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth Park or Seasons Restaurant or whatever, some kind of place, whatever the place is, um, I'd probably go. He's my friend. He's a very close friend. So I would go because I'm his friend. If he said, can you come to my wedding? It is at a church. I would say no. And the reason why I would say no is that what is going to be said up front is that Jesus affirms mm. this understanding of marriage, which is not true. And therefore, I feel like I'd be participating in, and I don't use this word hardly at all, blasphemy. Because I'm listening to someone who's speaking in the name of Jesus things that are not true. And I feel like if I'm participating in that, I'm participating in something that really is contrary to the truth of God. Hmm. And so that's that's how I've sorted it out in my mind. And that's not everybody. I, and I've said this, I've spoken to groups of pastors about this, and they, they all didn't agree on this. But this is how I've actually sorted it out in my mind. Mm -hmm. Do you get any thoughts on that? I think it goes back to what you were saying before about um, the difference between accepting and affirming. Yeah. That, um, mm, that's and good. Yeah. I don't know what it would look like for me. I, I but I think we as Christians, like affirming, as you said, is 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 off the table, but accepting, um, I could see a scenario where just being there would be accepting, but I can also see a scenario where just being there would maybe not be affirming for you, but people might look at that as affirmation. Oh, that's true. That well, clearly this is okay. Look, there's a pastor in the audience, or yeah, yeah. Um, and in my in my case, an elder. Like, um, so I would say that, yeah, it's not an easy it's not an easy question. That, that's a good that's a good additional point. That's really important. Yeah. Well, sorry, the, not a church. It just be a civic union, just a, a civil union. It's like I live in Canada, and same-sex marriage is is a legal thing in Canada. God's not; His name's not being brought in. It's just two people legally joining together, and I'd be you know. And that's just you know. I, I recognize living in a country, uh, you know, the right to do something is not always the right thing to do, but it, you have the right to do it, and so. Um, there's no invocation of God's name. There's no there's no blessing saying that God's pronouncing his blessing upon this, that this is something that God affirms. It's 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 just a, a you know a JP um bringing two people together. Yeah, I'd still struggle with that. Yeah, if they had a pastor there, yeah. Yeah, but usually if it's in a park or whatever, it's it's usually just a, a JP or something. Yeah. That's a tough one. I know, and I know I can hear the I can hear the rumbling in the, in the mines right now. Yeah. Um, would you attend a euthanization of a friend? Uh, no, I would not. If somebody was going through MAID and they asked me to be there, um, I don't think I would, because <laughs> I'd be I'd be witnessing a murder. I don't think I could handle it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, okay, next question. How are we doing for time? Oh, sorry, we're not going to have extra time for questions. <laughs> Let me read this next question very slowly. 
How do we know that the canon ended at Revelation? If a council listened to God and closed the scripture there, why don't we form councils today and discern whether God has more scripture for the Bible? That's a good question. You know, um, the very nature of a canon means it's closed. Uh, so that's actually what canon, like it's in, it's implicit in, in the actual um, word canon. The other thing is, is the councils that affirm the, let's say for the example, the books in the Bible, in particular the books in the New Testament, the councils that affirmed those books were councils that, again, affirmed books that were already seen as authoritative by the church. The councils didn't make them authoritative. No, a good Eastern Orthodox or Catholic person would say, <laughs> well, you're wrong. But hey, I'm a Protestant. Uh, I would just say, no, they, these, these books that were in the New Testament were in circulation. There were criteria that were used that... Uh, to determine which books had authority. I can tell you some of the criteria. Uh, the, the writing, the particular book had to be in wide circulation. Um, it had to certainly be in circulation in Rome. It couldn't just be in one particular area. It had to be wide circulation. Um, the author of the book had to uh, be a disciple of Jesus, had to have a direct connection to Jesus. The writing arose from a circle of people who are directly influenced by an apostle. And the writing was... Um, confined to the apostolic age. So that was an, an, an understanding. Uh, and the other thing is that uh, the, the writing actually had to understand Jesus in his historical sense, not some abstract Jesus, hmm. but Jesus in real history. Those are some of the criteria that were used. Uh, and most of the books that we see in the New Testament were, 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 were viewed as authoritative long before the Council of Nicaea, Council of Constantinople, um, in 325 and 381. Um, so th there's that. And the other thing is, part of the reason why the church had to say, okay, this these are the books that are in the New Testament, is because you had a guy coming along, a guy named Montanus, who had uh, two prophetesses on each arm, and he'd walk around and he established a church, and he called himself, very humbly so, the mouthpiece of God. <laughs> and he says, what I say is, um, I'm the mouthpiece of the Holy Spirit. What I say, you need to write down. And this is authoritative. I'm speaking the very words of the Holy Spirit. And so you had this guy going around saying, all these churches, you're all wrong. You're all going to hell. Listen to me. I got the words of God. I'm speaking the words of God. And the church had to say, well, wait a second. Wait a second. This is in the second century. Church says, No. We're not going to listen to you. But then they had to ask the question, okay, what do we listen to and why? Okay, so let's think this through. And this is what they decided, that these books that we have in our New Testament, they were seen as authoritative. They were in circulation. They were connected to an apostle. They had a historical view of Jesus. And therefore, these books were the ones that should be in the canon and not others. So I think that's, and so, I, I mean, I can go on and on about church history, and I know you'll love them to do that, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, anyhow, that's, it's, it's very clear why um, no new book should be part of the canon, because we're 2,000 years from the incarnation, right? So, last question, can disobedience cause you to miss out on God's blessing? What do you think? Yes. Okay. Let's pray. <laughs> uh, 
Well, yeah, I mean, it can. Now, maybe the, the question behind the question is, can disobedience disqualify you, uh, disqualify your salvation? Now, that's another question, and in which case I'd point you to Romans 8, that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Um, that our, our sins, is, is Jesus has paid for all of our sins. And so in our desire to walk with him, even when we're disobedient, and there are times where we are disobedient, it doesn't undermine our salvation. Um, it's just the longer picture of our, of our, uh, of our uh, life of discipleship. Now, if you're living in constant disobedience, mm -hmm. I really don't care what Jesus says, and I have no interest in following him ever, then I would ask the initial question, are you really a Christian? Yeah. Okay, so we're going to leave you a good seven minutes to ask some questions. Boy, I can't even keep track. You got a whole, I'm going to trust that my man, Kevin, is handling all these questions online. Thanks, Kevin. <laughs> uh, uh, other questions, follow-up questions. We have room for, well, it depends on the question. We have room for half of one or maybe a few. Right? Yeah, Mike. Okay, so what about people who say that if you don't read the King James then you're not what about those who say if you don't read the king james you're not reading the true scripture because they're reading it in the original english right yeah well i mean but why the king james and why not why not tyndale like, why not Tyndale's come, uh, Tyndale's translation? Because that most of the King James is Tyndale. So why isn't Tyndale's elevated? Yeah, so anyhow, my, by asking the question, I just think it's it's creative. And I meet people who are... But if somebody actually believes that, they believe that you're reading, what is the best way to do apologetics? I say this over and over again. Is to know your history. So how does a translation from 1611 under King James, which is drawing from um, Tyndale, yeah, Coverdale. Yeah, there's, there's there's a few guys. Yeah, so why is the King James version? And King it's not like King James was a very devout king. We can talk about <laughs> King James a little bit. Um, so why that translation? Why does that have special value? And does the NKJV help? Like the new King James, is that still holy? Yeah, it's not actually probably. Probably not because, yeah. <laughs> Anyhow, it, to me, I just it just doesn't make sense why they would because if you yeah. Well, and what I would point out is just the amount of archaeological discovery from 1611 to today of manuscripts that actually help us understand through the practice of textual criticism, which really was in its infancy in 1611, um, that can help us understand what the original manuscripts actually said. Why would you ignore 400 years of textual criticism and archeological discovery? Makes no sense. They're not the only ones to have that kind of attitude either. You look at some of the um, commentaries around when the Vulgate came out, 600, 600? Yeah. Right. There, there was a right. bunch of theologians that are like, why does anybody need to read any scripture that's not ancient, like the original Greek? So that kind of attitude of like, no, you shouldn't 
have scripture in in a language that's familiar with you, you should go back to uh, and learn a, I mean, I guess we don't, it's not, the King James isn't strange enough that it's completely foreign to us, but there are a lot of words and a lot of phrases that are not. That we don't use anymore. We don't use anymore. So there is an element of learning another language there. Mm-hmm. I think this has kind of gone throughout church history and by and large, the church is open to new translations that bring the scripture to more people. Yeah, no, that's good. Yeah. Oh, okay. So t- talking about um, prayers and praying with more people where two or three are gathered together, I'm in your midst. Do you want to? No? Yeah, I mean, I can, yeah, you yeah. can take that one. <laughs> I think it's, I mean, it is a picture that where two or three are gathered. It's a picture of witnesses, a picture mm-hmm. of, of um, you need at least two witnesses for, for somebody's testimony to be valid. I think there's a bit of that. Um, it's not like where two or three are gathered, suddenly Jesus said, um, okay. Uh, it's it's just it is a picture of 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 um, giving affirmation to the legitimacy of the testimony of who Jesus is. I think there's a bit of that behind there. In the building of community. Okay, comment. Um, regarding Christians' relationship with God, um, like my husband, a Christian, married me, and he was 13 years old, and like. I think that a lot of us really Christians and non-Christians and like I was back at the visible. So he was really patient for a long time. Yeah. And just a word of like you heard it. Yeah, yeah. Non-Christians. Yeah. I'm just gonna say Jess was she was baptized this weekend and she was an atheist and she got married, and so she was the atheist and her husband was Christian and he waited how many years? Thirteen years, thirteen long years, yeah. Um <laughs> And then just to give hope to people who maybe are in 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 the context of marriage when they they're willing they're ready to give up hope not to give up hope right good and your question tattoos okay. tattoos oh what do I think about tattoos you're asking the wrong person I've just I just told my daughters no tattoos no uh, okay tattoos I do I do have some comments about tattoos believe it or not. Um, for the most part, I don't, it's not that big of a deal. But we go back to the heart. Go back to the heart. What are we doing when we're getting tattoos? And in particular, how are we thinking of the body? Is the body a billboard to proclaim my inner sense of self and therefore secondary my body's an instrument to kind of show who i truly am on the inside i i get a little hesitant about that because again it's this in our culture this degradation of the body where our bodies don't matter or they're secondary to this inner sense of self And I do see in the last 20 years of proliferation of people getting tattoos, not just one, and and people can't just get one. They're just getting more and more and more. And it's this this idea that somehow our bodies are billboards to project who we are. And I think it's a bit of a a dualistic understanding of the self that I think is problematic. So I'm not a big fan of tattoos. And in many ways, 
I'm countercultural because I don't have a tattoo. <laughs> I almost, when I was young, got a tattoo and I was into, I was really into martial arts when I was young. So I was going to get a yin yang, but then somebody told me it would really hurt to get it here. So I said, no. Um, <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. Organ donations. Yeah. I think it's like, I have, if I get run over or whatever, um, you know, Chris, you're going to pick up my body and you'll take out my heart and my brain and all those sorts of things. Because it works at the fire, fire station over there. Um, <laughs> that, that's not in your job description. <laughs> I have no, I mean, it's an, it's an act of love. So if you're dying, it's an act of, of laying down your organs for the sake of others, which really sounds like the heart of Jesus. Mm. So I, I have no, no issue with that. I think God can figure out all those things afterwards. Yeah. Yeah, Chris. The spirit will Oh, man. You're going to lay that one right at the end? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So it's a whole question. Yeah, two-word answer on the rapture and end times. Yes. <laughs> Let me get let, I'm just gonna say this. I'm just gonna say this. There are many, many perspectives in terms of how things are gonna play out in the end. And it requires diligent biblical study to say I come down to this perspective or this perspective. There's different ways that you understand Jesus' return and what happens prior to his return. I'm just gonna say this. However it plays out, I'm going to be okay with it. If it's pre-millennial, I'm fine. If it's post-millennial, I don't care. If it's amillennial, I don't care. I'm pro-millennial. So whatever happens, happens. Um, I really don't care. And so how I just know that in the end, to quote our, 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 our my one of my favorite saints, if I can quote uh, Julian of Norwich, that all shall be well. Yeah. All right. I'm going to wrap our time up. Hey, good, good questions. All right, everyone. That's good. Okay, so let me uh, let me close in prayer, and then I have one announcement for everybody. Lord, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your kindness, and thank you for granting us uh, wisdom and discernment uh, and help as we uh, tackle these really good questions. And Lord, forgive us for where we fall short mm -hmm. and where we did not answer well. Mm -hmm. uh, we do pray that um, that those who are still with uh, serious questions would find help and would get answers to the questions. We're thankful that the, your reality does not stand or fall on how well we answer or don't answer mm -hmm. questions. We thank you that you are Lord of the universe and uh, that you can deal with any hard question. We're thankful for this, Lord. We commit our lives to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.